Coming to you from the Outer Mission, this is Monkey Block, a storytelling podcast focused on San Francisco's golden past, 1849 through 1906. I'm your host, Girlina. The stories are closely based on newspapers of the time, historical books, and journals. Disclaimer, I do my best to research and share the real stories, extracting legends or calling them out. Now, let's go back in time. Welcome back, dear listeners, and welcome any newcomers. In my last episode, I described the early history of Yerba Buena through the eyes of one of its most influential residents, William Heath Davis Jr. He was one of a few foreigners who lived in Yerba Buena and witnessed the California province go from Spanish to Mexican to American rule. William Heath Davis is the most famous Yerba Buena San Francisco resident you've never heard of. Well, if you listened to the last episode, you've certainly heard of him. I'm diving into Davis's story because it directly captures Yerba Buena and early San Francisco history with an inside look at how one socially and financially privileged foreigner experienced Yerba Buena among other socially and financially privileged foreigners and Californios. Today's episode is based on 75 Years in California by William Heath Davis and also An American in California, the biography of William Heath Davis, 1822-1909 through 1909, by Andrew F. Roll. In my last episode, I left off in 1838 Yerba Buena with the arrival of 17-year-old William Heath Davis, who left the Sandwich Islands to work with his uncle at Yerba Buena's first merchant store. Davis's uncle, Nathan Spear, had a falling out with his business partners in Monterey and acquired new business partners. They realized the growing commerce coming in and out of Yerba Buena Cove would equate to future business potential now that the seaside port was formally established a few years earlier. Nathan Spear purchased lot number two, today's northwest corner of Clay and Montgomery Street, and built a store with an attached residence and opened a store in Yerba Buena with Jacob Primer Lease and William Sturgis Hinckley. There's a reason I said purchased versus granted, and I'll get to that in a moment. To be clear, Yerba Buena Cove had a growing business that predates the establishment of the Pueblo de Yerba Buena. So the Pueblo was named after the cove, both literally and chronologically. This point got lost in time. Actually, the importance of the commerce coming in and out of Yerba Buena prior to the American takeover got lost in time. While working at his uncle's Yerba Buena store during his first year, Davis met several influential people from traders, captains, to government officials. Davis absorbed much of what his uncle taught him and quickly became skillful and comfortable negotiating prices on large quantities and was, therefore, able to take on more responsibilities at the store. 1839 was a big year for Davis, Spear, and Yerba Buena. 
In addition to Spears' merchant store, Spear has a grist mill shipped from Baltimore to start what would become a very successful grain milling business just next to his merchant store and house. Spear was able to adapt this mule-powered machinery to also saw lumber, make shingles, turn a lathe, and run a bolting apparatus to refine flour. I believe this was the first grist mill in California, but I'm saying that with a question mark as I can't be certain that it was the first one. It was certainly a very successful grist mill, though. Side note, 1839, there are eight permanent households in Yerba Buena, so this merchant store and grist mill were not established for just these permanent residents. Rather, these businesses are for the residents of the surrounding area, the not-so-near and really far, who travel from the rancheros to the pueblo, as well as for the merchant and whaling ships that are coming in and out of the cove two or three months at a time. Spear was a savvy businessman. He knew if you wanted business, you have to advertise. So he has Davis travel by horseback to advertise the mill's services to their already existing merchant customers in search of new customers, both for merchant trading and the new grain milling. Davis quickly began accessing new customers by using boats to reach the rancheros who live near the Sacramento and San Joaquin River. This is what I mean about people traveling far distances to get to Yerba Buena Cove, and Spears's land-based merchant store being a game-changer for the surrounding area. The business model went like this. Davis would travel and pick up the customer's grain and or take their merchandise orders, travel back to Yerba Buena to mill the grain, and then return with the milled flour and or merchandise orders to the rancheros. Apparently, grain production was big business in Northern California. Sonoma's General Mariano Vallejo was one of their largest regular customers. This advertising campaign and traveling business model was pivotal to Davis's career. With the use of the boat, in addition to the milling business, Davis starts buying cattle, hides and tallow from his customers and rancheros. The trading was coming directly to the rancheros' home, allowing Davis and his crew to literally take care of the heavy lifting, eliminating the rancheros' need to travel to Yerba Buena, which was, historically, how the hide and tallow trading for merchandise was occurring. It was Amazon delivery ahead of its time. Around this time, Captain Johann Augustus Sutter, also known as John Sutter, the man with the gifted tongue and the legacy of secretly abandoning his wife and kids in Switzerland to avoid debtor's prison, found himself in Yerba Buena. The more I learn about Sutter, the the less I like him. After fleeing Switzerland for safer territory, Sutter lands in Mexico, and he creates a new persona for himself as a commander. Sutter was a lot of things, but stupid was not one of them. He quickly becomes a Mexican citizen and convinces the Mexican government to grant him land. Once the grant was secured, Sutter made his way up the coast to Yerba Buena to obtain the supplies he needed to start his own trading post in this new envisioned colony he planned to name New Helvetica, which we now call Sacramento. 
At that time, the Sacramento area was primitive land, which Mexico needed some on-site representation to ward off the interested Americans and English. But Sutter had no familiarity with the land, so while he was in Yerba Buena, Sutter asked Speer for a guide to get him to his granted land. Since Davis had already traveled along that route several times, Speer felt this would be a great opportunity for Davis. And so it was. Davis escorted Sutter and his company to the Sacramento area and stayed for a bit to help Sutter set up what would go on to become Sutter's fort. Reminiscing later in life, one of Spears's and Davis's proudest accomplishments was their part in helping establish what would become the capital of California. Their relationship with Sutter, however, <laughs> that soured. History repeated itself, and Sutter, who tended to borrow money or buy things on credit he never planned on repaying, managed to stay warm at night with all the bridges he burnt along the way. Also in 1839, Davis was given rights to land in Yerba Buena by the governor, lot number 19, December 9th, 1839. Now, Davis was not a Mexican citizen at that time. So like his uncle Nathan Spear, who maintained his U.S. citizenship, they both had to outright purchase the land from the Mexican government. In Spears's case, he chose not to become a Mexican citizen and had to purchase his land. Davis attempted to gain Mexican citizenship, but was surprised to learn he didn't qualify for Mexican citizenship after being arrested in the Graham Affair, which is an interesting Alta California rabbit hole I'm not going to go down. Davis's lot was cataloged as 100 varas in front of Yerba Buena Beach, right by his uncle's store and gristmill. And by the way, Yerba Buena Beach would soon be called Montgomery Beach for the short time Montgomery Street was beachfront property. By mid-1841, the Pueblo de Yerba Buena now has Spears' store and mill, a blacksmith shop, some outbuildings, and the very popular Vioges Billiard Room and Bar. Spears' grist mill is doing very well, in addition to his merchant store. However, in September 1841, Spears' Yerba Buena store faces its biggest competition when the international Hudson Bay Company opened a store in Yerba Buena. I've intentionally avoided mentioning the Hudson Bay Company in my podcast until now, and that's to prove a point. History has said there was nothing of importance in Yerba Buena until the Hudson Bay Company arrived. Nothing to see here. No one lived there. Nothing of importance to discuss. And if that were so, I wonder what my past nine episodes are about. If there was nothing in Yerba Buena, why would an international company set up shop in desolate territory? They wouldn't. There had to be a business reason to do so. And Spears' successful business selling to incoming ships and rancheros was proof that there was already a there there to invest in. Jacob Primer Lease and family leave Yerba Buena, selling the west two-thirds of the block bounded by Kearney, Sacramento, Clay, and Montgomery Streets to the Hudson Bay Company. That was four separate 50 Vada lots 
the Hudson Bay Company purchased, which included Lisa's house where, as the second settler in Yerba Buena, he once lived with his family. And that's a large wood two-story building. The Hudson Bay Company paid $4,800, half in coin and half in goods for the land and property. Are you curious to know what that translates into in today's money? So that is $151,340 in today's money. Davis was friends with William G. Ray, who ran the Hudson Bay store. Davis writes of spending many late nights and early mornings playing the card game Whist with his friend Ray, and always as Ray's playing partner. What is Whist? Whist is a classic English trick-taking card game which needs four players making two teams. Davis writes about the Hudson Bay Company. The company traded in the same way that other merchants did on the coast, sending out their little launches and schooners to collect hide and tallow about the bay and to deliver goods. And they did a good business until the death of Ray in January 1845. They had no large vessels trading up and down the coast. Long story short, the Hudson Bay Company was located very close to Viogé's bar, too close in fact, and this encouraged Ray's drinking habit. Davis writes of his friend's tendency for depression. There are a few variations for why Ray's life ended, but all the stories have the same ending, and that's suicide, leaving his wife and three children behind. All of Yerba Buena believed Ray's death was a great tragedy. They lost their best card player. Davis spends a total of four years working at the Yerba Buena store with his uncle and becomes a successful businessman, having established loyal business relationships and friendships. In 1842, at his uncle's urging, Davis leaves his position as the Yerba Buena storekeeper and starts his own shipping cargo company, then called a supercargo, which means he managed the ship and sold the ship's cargo, two things he was already skilled at doing, but now he was doing this for himself. Davis becomes one of Yerba Buena's prominent merchant and ship owners and is officially following in his father's footsteps and is very successful with his new venture. Davis spent his life trying to learn about the father he never met from people who knew him and very much looked up to the man he never knew. And just like his father, Davis was one of the many ships who were smuggling, which Davis preferred the euphemism, non-payment of duties. (laughs) Professionally, things are going very well for Davis, but now 21 years old in 1842, Davis starts thinking about settling down. In his own words, Davis said he could manage his growing business more advantageously if he married a daughter of the soil of California or Spanish extraction. Let's interpret that statement. If you were a foreigner, the fast-track method to furthering your business opportunities in California was to be a Mexican citizen. The fastest route to becoming a Mexican citizen was to marry a Mexican citizen. Foreign men would strategically marry the daughters of prominent Californios. In Davis's case, he wasn't eligible for Mexican citizenship on his own due to his prior arrest. 
Technically speaking, the Mexican government could deport an American for illegally being here, but that rarely to never happened. But it could have. It was more than citizenship, though. If you married the daughter of a land-wealthy ranchero, you would inherit her land as her husband. Said another way, as a Californiana, if your father was land-wealthy with Mexican land grants, you were well sought after. The opposite side of that, Californios also hoped that this type of marital and business intermingling would side in their favor when, not if, the United States or England took possession of California. While Mexican government officials were mostly opposed to this takeover, the rancheros Davis interacted with were in favor of the takeover. My first thought was, well, yes. Of course, the Californios Davis directly did business with would speak favorably to an American about an American possession of their state. And yes, I'm sure to an extent that was conveniently true. However, per Mexican cultural tradition, the suitor has to formally ask the father for his daughter's hand in marriage. If the father doesn't agree, the marriage does not go forward. So this is a two-way negotiation. I'm stating this in a sterile, transactional manner, but there was also true affection and love which accompanied these marriages as well. We are still in 1842. Davis, as the supercargo of the ship Don Quixote, finds himself anchored in Santa Barbara at a merchant store. While Davis is discussing business, a Californio father and his daughter walk into the store. And that's Don Joaquin Estudio and Maria de Jesus Estudio, who were visiting from San Leandro. Davis was already acquainted with Señor Estudio via his past merchant trading with rancheros. Actually, Estudio knew Davis's father from earlier merchant trading from several years earlier. On this day, Cupid aims his arrow for Davis's heart, and Maria caught Davis's eye. Despite meeting in Southern California, she lived in Northern California in San Leandro, which is in the East Bay for my international listeners, close enough to Davis in Yerba Buena in the San Francisco Bay. Once he returned home, Davis would start making visits to the Estudio San Leandro Ranch as part of his trading, of course. One year later, in 1843, Davis writes, By this time, I was seriously in love with the young senorita I had previously met in Santa Barbara. But there was strong opposition in the Estudio family from Maria's older sister, who, according to Davis, was envious of her younger sister possibly marrying before her. Maria had many other suitors, which she let Davis know about. She was the daughter of a wealthy Californian. Davis had expressed his interest in marrying Maria while talking to Senora Estudio, and per cultural tradition, in 1845, Davis formally writes a letter to Senor Estudio asking for his daughter's hand in marriage. Davis receives a letter back from Maria's father, and the request was denied. Davis believed this was the influence of the older sister. Davis moves on with his life, diving into his business, trying to forget the rejected marriage proposal. He left for Honolulu to obtain goods for trading in California and to visit his family, which kept him away for a few months. 
1846, August, returning from his merchant-related travels, Davis was in Monterey doing business prior to returning to Yerba Buena. He happened to meet up with his friend, Henry Mellis, who asked Davis to take a stroll along the beach after they conducted business. During this walk, Mellis said, Don Guillermo, that's Spanish for William, I have something to impart to you that concerns you deeply regarding one of the daughters of Don Joaquin Estudio of San Leandro. I have heard the true story about your love affair, and my authority is undoubted. And when it was related to me, it seemed incredible, but it was true, nevertheless. La Señorita Maria never knew you had written her father, and she was in ignorance of the letter he sent you declining your proffer of marriage. I really pity the poor girl for what she has suffered during your absence from the coast. I am sure when she learns of your return, she will be more than delighted to see you at her home. Davis returns to Yerba Buena eight months later in April 1846, but unfortunately, Davis had thrown himself into work and had obligations that kept him busy. So busy, he didn't have time to go to San Leandro, now with this news about Maria. He wanted so badly to call upon Don Joaquin Estudio and visit the family, but it didn't happen. A month later, May 20th, Davis was conducting business in South Salido, that's in the North Bay, where at the same time, Maria was visiting her favorite aunt, Mrs. Richardson. That's William Richardson's wife. They had left Yerba Buena and moved to South Salido. Upon learning that Maria was also in South Salido at the same time, Davis got in touch with the aunt who invited Davis over for dinner. And it was very clear that evening that Maria was very happy to see Davis. The following night, Davis invited the family, including Maria, to dine on his ship. Having recently returned from another trip to Honolulu, he had several items in stock. So the dinner menu that night was chicken soup, chicken salad, boiled turkey and ham, roasted duck, sweet potatoes and other vegetables and fruits, custards, cakes, and confections. And then to wash it down, they drank claret, white wine, champagne, and sherry. But the visit to South Salido came to an end. As Davis sailed away from South Salido on the now departing ship and Maria on land, they waved their handkerchiefs to one another until the ship disappeared into the Golden Gate. Ah. Two months later, in July 1846, the USS Portsmouth landed in Yerba Buena and claimed the town for the United States. The days of Mexico's Yerba Buena had come to an end. Davis was well-positioned to continue to conduct business in the takeover, as he was already well-connected with the foreigners who are no longer foreigners, and the newly made foreigners who just a few days prior weren't foreigners, in the United States takeover of California. But... Cupid and Davis's heart. In November 1847, at the Mission San Francisco de Assis, Davis, with the blessing of the father, marries Maria de Jesus Estudio in what was considered the grandest event in California history. They settled into the Yerba Buena house Davis had built for his bride, located at Sacramento and Jackson Street. Davis did more than marry the woman he was in love with. 
he married into one of the wealthiest families in Northern California, securing his place in California business among other prominent landholding families. It would be a handful of years before the Californios would begin losing their land grants, but for now, Davis has married the love of his life and into a, for now, wealthy California family. There is so much more to tell about Davis's life, and I haven't decided if I want to continue telling his story, but for today, I end it here. Davis said he could manage his growing business more advantageously if he married a daughter of the soil of California or Spanish extraction. But affection and love were also involved in this scenario. Felicidades, Senor Davis. Congratulations. In the end, it didn't matter that Davis never became a Mexican citizen. He's now in the United States without ever having crossed a border. He didn't cross the border. The border crossed him. If you're enjoying this podcast, please share it with your friends and spread the word. And if you're inspired to do so, please leave a review of my podcast. You can read today's transcript and locate the cited sources at monkeyblocksf.buzzsprout.com. Please bookmark or favorite this podcast to be alerted when new episodes are released. You can visit MonkeyBlock to comment on a specific episode at facebook.com forward slash monkeyblocksf or twitter.com forward slash monkeyblocksf. You can email me directly at monkeyblocksf at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. This is Monkey Block, retelling forgotten stories from San Francisco's golden past. The cover of Maria was provided with permission by Daniel Blair, violinist extraordinaire.